When everything feels upside down, culture is what holds us together. It's the songs that soundtrack our morning commute and our quarantine living room dance parties, or that beckon us down to the bar to find someone to make out with. It's the shows we binge and the books we read to wind down after a hard day at work, and it's the meals we cook to remember our grandmothers. It's an excuse to get out of the house and go sit in a dark theater on a Saturday afternoon, and a litmus test for finding other people who see the world like we do. It's the thing that gives our lives meaning when it's hard to make sense of anything at all. I'm Andrea Dominic. And I'm Emily Friedlander. Welcome to The Culture Journalist, a podcast about the wild west of culture and culture journalism in the year 2020. Think of it as your guide to understanding the arts, technology, and a shifting labor landscape through the lens of culture reporting. Hosted by us, two freelance journalists from opposite sides of the country. Emily, I cannot believe we're here. It's already episode 10 of The Culture Journalist, which means it's the last episode of our first season. We want to thank our listeners for tuning in and sharing these conversations with us. I don't know about you, Andrea, but recording this podcast has really helped me to stay more connected during a pretty lonesome year. It's definitely helped me too, and it's been really cool to see what kind of community is actually out there surrounding these conversations, and that it's not just us that think it's important to, you know, be talking about this stuff. Everyone should know we are already at work on season two, and we've got some big surprises in store. In the meantime, we'd love your feedback. What you like, what you hate, and anything you'd want to hear us tackle in future episodes. If you want to drop us a line, just email culturejournalistpod at gmail.com. And before we dive into today's episode, we also want to give a shout out to some of our fabulous paid subscribers who have helped make the show possible this season. Many, many thanks to Judy Berman, Lily Becker, Laura Grover, Ben Bernstein, Mary Carrion, Susie Zimmerman, Scott Jossen, Tiffany Wines, Judy Tonka, Tara Newarth, Mary Catherine Youngblood, and Joe McCarthy. And if we didn't include your name, it's because we never received it. But please know that you are loved and appreciated. And now, on to the show. Hello, everyone. Time has flown by, but it is now our 10th and last episode of the first season of The Culture Journalist. We started this podcast from a feeling that we were running out of places to tell stories about culture that we felt like were becoming more important than ever. And this week, we wanted to reflect a little bit on everything that we've talked about and learned and what that tells us about where we're heading as we head into a new year and a new administration. Emily, how do you feel like things have evolved since we started this project? My God, I mean... So we started it in August, and honestly, I think it's just gone by really quickly, just like time tends to during the pandemic. It almost feels like a matter of weeks instead of months. 
one good thing about this podcast is that we started it amid headlines that tens of thousands of journalists had lost their jobs and things were feeling pretty bleak. And getting to talk to so many people has given me a bit more hope and a bit more sense of community. But otherwise, you know, it, it, it still is feeling pretty dark. Part of it is that we've talked to so many inspiring people who are trying to make things happen in the culture industry and fight for the rights of workers. But a lot of our future in general hangs not just on, you know, a new president, which fortunately we have. We didn't know that when we recorded the last episode, but also a stimulus bill and also a vaccine. And it's hard to see everyone's efforts come to fruition without some of those things in place. At the same time, as overwhelming as this is, this conversation has brought to light just how much everyone is kind of on the same page about these concerns, about the kind of actions that we want to see taken, about the kind of solutions we want to see And if anything, the pandemic and the political situation and everything going on this year, I feel in a way has kind of peeled back the layers on a lot of structural issues that we felt like maybe were only reserved to our personal experiences or the industries that we're in. But really, whether you are, you know, a journalist, a musician, a filmmaker, an artist, or just any kind of freelancer we're all facing the same issues and it's an interesting level playing field for young people and creatives to gather around right now. The pandemic in 2020 has taught us a lot about how we value culture and creativity for better and for worse. Definitely. I think that in a way this podcast grew out of that feeling of the work we do as culture journalists has become increasingly devalued or just kind of non-existent. There is no platform for this. And then as we kept talking to people from different sides of the culture industry and hearing about their stories, we got to look at other ways that they felt that the work that they were doing was being kind of devalued or the problems that were already there before the pandemic, but that the pandemic revealed. What have been some of those things that have stood out to you that we've learned about that have been revealed? Like what surprised you the most? There is something that I was kind of surprised about, which was, you know, I have a bit of a background in the music events industry. I was the co-founder of this publication and events company called Ad Hoc out of New York. And I was used to how things ran in that industry, the sense of thin margins, steep competition between promoters and venues. And to see that industry rally around the future of live music, especially through the organization NEVA, the National Independent Venue Association, pull everybody together, all of these sort of competing entities, and fight for recognition of that industry's contribution to local economies, for example, in an attempt to get public assistance, like to save the industry, that has been one of the biggest pleasant surprises for me. I gravitated to it because it felt like something outside of sort of the the system or this sort of uh, sub economy or like niche economy outside of other economies. And then watching it become wholly politicized and 
literally turn into like its own kind of lobbying group and become so politically motivated and aware has been really inspiring. Definitely. For me, it's made me think a lot about how interconnected actually all of these different fields are. It's really provided a bird's eye view on the entire creative labor ecosystem. You know, like the role that, that journalists play in the fight of something like Neva and the role that labor advocacy plays within that. And all the different people behind the scenes, like people that run venues, running independent venues, I don't think is just something that most people would necessarily have thought that much about before when they think about their own careers. And it's been interesting and very cool to see the collective support across different fields and the bridges that we've all been building Mm -hmm. to help amplify what our respective industries are going through. Like Shruti Kumar, who was our guest a few weeks ago on our episode about the digital hustle and who helped launch the platform Sound Travels, which is sort of a job board and advocacy group for music workers. She's been really great about helping promote the show and talking about issues in journalism and media as well on her own radio show and the work that she does, because, again, we're facing all the same issues. At the same time, the pandemic has also called attention to the role of large monopolies and big business in the music industry, even with the example of Neva and all of this amazing work they have done amid the pandemic, we're also seeing headlines about, for example, this ex-WME chief, Mark Geiger, Geiger, launching the $75 million plan to buy up struggling music venues and this specter of potential business opportunism amid the wreckage. And I think that that is a fear that I have for sure. There's kind of this tension or contrast between the music industry, the culture industry becoming a more communitarian place where workers are rising up together and trying to fight for their interests and their rights. And then the corporate sides of that industry fighting for dominance as well, or I get worried that this could go one of two ways. Just as we saw, for example, the recent merger between the company that owns Rolling Stone and the company that owns Billboard, where the remaining music journalism industry might be consolidating into this corporate behemoth. There's this interesting tension between the grassroots And then the establishment. Totally. I think you you had a really good tweet about that. I remember that was likening that new culture media conglomeration to like the live nation of music media, Mm -hmm. which it kind of feels like, you know, it, it does right now feel like we're kind of at this tipping point. You know, we're really primed to see collective organization and solidarity and demands for better evaluation and pay across these different creative fields. But at the same time, there's also this window for these corporations, be it Spotify, be it, you know, live music production companies to come in and further encroach on these previously independent organizations and spaces even more than before, because there's really no other relief solution on the table right now. Totally. And have you heard of the book Billion Dollar Loser by the New York mag reporter Reeves Weidemann? 
I've heard of it, but remind me what it's about again. It's a story about Adam Newman, the founder and former CEO of WeWork and sort of the story of WeWork over time. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, it's really, really good. I highly recommend it. It's definitely a page turner in telling the story of WeWork's rise as a company that started with a single office leasing space and became this multi-billion dollar tech giant. I think after Uber went public was the highest valued private company in America. And it's this incredible story of private like venture capital investments stacking upon venture capital investments until the whole thing just kind of becomes unrealistic and unsustainable and their IPO couldn't work. It's a good book because it feels like that was in some ways the lesson of the past decade where, you know, we definitely see this in media, the role of private equity in media, for example, and huge venture capital investments in culture companies. There is this feeling of permanent daylight or something that happened somewhere in the tens, like after we sort of emerged from the recession and that it was all just sort of built on nothing. (laughs) It's just incredible, like how much the last 10 years were dominated by these large companies. And then we see the pandemic just revealing how insane and unrealistic it all was. You know, it's it's certainly heavier than a straw that broke the camel's back. But it's the sense of if one thing going pretty wrong really illuminates just, just how fragile and unsubstantial these seeming institutions actually have become. Totally. And we saw that a lot with music journalism, digital music and culture journalism. When I got into it at the turn of the last decade, was flush with money. I remember being flown places to spend three days to report a cover story with an artist, you know, like stuff that would never happen now seems almost like excess or something in retrospect. That money was coming from somewhere and and like the existence of that money was based on speculation on the future of the industry, according to the model that it had. And then to see what happened with that bubble and music journalism just being a shell of its former self is, it just makes me feel like the last decade was built on some kind of lie and the system was just broken a decade ago and we're only really realizing that now. I think that's a really good point. Even if you look at what already felt like a very leaned out version of our industry like a year ago, I remember it was last summer Playboy flew me out to San Francisco for a feature and they put me up Mm -hmm. and they paid me really well, you know, and it ended up being a beautiful print product. Even at the time, I remember mentioning it to some of our peers and everyone being like, wow, that's really old school. Mm -hmm. You don't see that happening that much these days. And then it's like flash forward a year now and Playboy doesn't even exist anymore, which is a crazy acceleration. But it also, to me, raises a question like, Back to this question of feeling like we're at a tipping point, I wonder if we're going to now start seeing the end of speculation that sort of created this false inflation of the kind of work that we do, or the institutions that disseminate the work that we do, and a return to 
the real needs for it and what that substantive content was originally created for. And business models that actually work. (laughs) Yeah, to put it concisely, yeah. And there's just been this overall sort of devaluation of the work we do with the existing system. There has been a prolonged devaluation of the work that artists do. One that we're seeing, especially now that the pandemic has sort of brought the music industry and much of the culture industry to a halt. I think, Andrea, and and tell me what you think, I think that because artists, for example, are no longer able to make most of their money through touring or any money through touring, really, we are sort of seeing the contours of this digital infrastructure we have built for the distribution, dissemination of cultural goods, and it's not looking so pretty. I think up until now, there's certainly been a lot of controversy and press and conversations surrounding what a lot of music workers and musicians are saying is being underpaid by streaming platforms. But it hasn't been actionable on a widespread level because artists were just relying on touring. They still had this other way to kind of get by, and it was seen as more of a shift from where artists are making money now versus in the past. And now Mm -hmm. it's being seen as a fundamental flaw that needs to be addressed. You know, we spoke to a number of artists this year. I remember our conversation with Jubilee and she was talking about how since the pandemic, she feels like she's performing like, you know, three times the work or five times the work for diminishing returns. Yeah, I think she said it feels like you're doing 10 times the work for one tenth of the pay. Yeah. And without touring, without playing live, artists have been restricted to what money they can eke out from live stream performances, a business model for which hasn't really been fully fleshed out. But one that we might now see that's here to stay. Yeah. And, you know, obviously just keeping up this constant interaction with fans on social media, hoping that fans will purchase a piece of merch, purchase an album, just throw a little bit of money their way. And then streaming revenue, which is on Spotify, for example, streaming revenue on average is $0.0038 per stream. So around a third of a cent per stream on average fractions of a penny per stream yeah i don't know there's just there's something that's happened with many many industries including ours the journalism industry where there's such a high emphasis on having to do all of this work that is not actually getting paid in order to get paid And with streaming, there's this direct emphasis on visibility over actual payment, where artists are increasingly competing more for just attention as opposed to actual revenue. Right. They're competing for likes, retweets, shares. And that's something, again, that we're seeing in our industry as well. Like, It's not just like you write an article or publish a podcast and then people consume it, then there's this whole other chunk of unpaid labor where, you know, you have to promote it on social media, create assets to promote it on social media, engage with your audience. There's no compensation for that. And it may only marginally help the compensation that you get as a result of that work and people then going and engaging 
with whatever it is, whether it's an article or a song or an album. You sent me a really great article by Hua Su in The New Yorker recently that was kind of about this. Yeah, it was called How Can We Pay for Creativity in the Digital Age, which has become, I think, the question of our time when we're talking about the state of culture right now. The subhead on it is there's still money to be made, but it's mostly not the creators who are getting rich, which is, you know, exactly what we're talking about here. And isn't it based on a book, right? Right. What that piece is, is a review of this book by the critic William Dersowitz. The book is called The Death of the Artist, colon, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech, which I cannot wait to read. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk to that guy. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, an interesting point that the piece and I believe the book makes is that a lot of the digital tools that have become very everyday or that kind of define the fabric of our existence right now are sold to us or predicated on the idea of freedom, empowerment, dropping out of the world of traditional employment and being this independent economic actor who is scrappily building their own artistic or media empire using these free tools. And that myth, which I think Liz Pelly has spoken about in her great reporting on Spotify, the artist Matt Dryhurst is talking about a lot. But the article talks about how that myth is one that serves the companies, the platforms, and not the people who are actually creating the content. And I think we see that a lot with Spotify, for sure, which is um, something we're going to talk about today. That's right. A lot of these realizations about the devaluation of creative work is causing a lot of people, including our next guest, to ask questions about, you know, how do we value culture and creativity and who gets to make those decisions? We'll be right back to talk with musician and activist Joey Laneve de Francesco after a quick break. Welcome back. We're excited to introduce Joey Laneve de Francesco, a longtime organizer, historian, and a member of the Providence punk band The Downtown Boys. Joey is on the steering committee of the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, also known as UMA, an organization born out of the pandemic that recently launched a new campaign called Justice at Spotify. The campaign has garnered signatures from over 18,000 musicians and music workers, and it places a series of demands on the company with the aim of making the streaming economy work better for artists, labels, and other rights holders. It also includes the demand that rights holders get compensated a penny per stream for their recorded music. So Joey, can you just tell us what is UMA and what was the impetus for starting it when you guys did? So UMA is a union of uh, music workers so it's musicians and just anyone working in the music industry so you know venue workers label workers all coming together in a collective organization to fight for better working conditions for musicians and other people in the music industry um, we started in march like when the pandemic hit 
when very, very suddenly uh, everyone, uh, nearly everyone in the music industry, certainly musicians, um, saw all of our work, all of our income um, entirely disappear. And there had been a lot of discussion, I think, for quite some time about, you know, starting a union for like independent musicians, right? Things like the American Federation of Musicians already exist, but are, are, and we support them, but is more narrowly focused on like, um, you know, people working at Broadway shows, uh, people working in films, you know, like more single employer relationship music workers. Um, but we didn't have something to fight for the rights of uh, what most musicians and music workers are now, which is some kind of independent musician where you have a lot of people you're working for, a lot of different income sources. Um, and COVID, I think, finally gave this final push to those of us who had been talking about this for a while, where it's like, okay, now we really have to get together to uh, join with other workers to demand some relief here, because this is a dire, dire situation. Um, and it still is. So um, we started having some initial meetings and um, got some COVID relief demands ready um, in those initial weeks to join with the you know millions of other workers in this country and around the world who are demanding more relief uh, from their governments um, during this crisis. It's always striking to me to hear that what we think of as musicians, particularly independent musicians and contractors, there's never really been a precedent for a traditional kind of union. And I'm just wondering, do you have any insight or thoughts as to why there hasn't been any kind of traditional organized labor union for these types of musicians before? Yeah, so when, when the American Federation of Musicians first started, you know, over 100 years ago, they, they initially did have pretty broad goals for their membership. I think they defined a member could be anyone who uh, earns a paycheck from performing music. So it's very broad how they're defining it at first. But over time, that's been made increasingly narrow, right? So to where it's only including um, classical musicians, uh, like, you know, again, theater. But um, you're right, there's been this whole vast world of musicians who just haven't um, had any kind of collective representation or been working together collectively um, for so long. Um, I think it's hard to say exactly why that is. Um, some of it certainly just in our country, especially, um, it's so anti-union, so hyper-individualistic that it hasn't taken place here. I mean, other countries do have this, like the MU, the Musicians Union um, in the UK, for instance, has a much broader membership um, than the, the ones do in the United States. Um, but here, just the, the hyper-individualistic message has certainly deterred musicians from organizing. Um, I think even just within our lifetimes, we've seen the discourse around, um, you know, anger at major labels and anger at Spotify, anger at um, corporatization of music take very individualistic outlets where people kind of, you know, complain on the internet or believe that the way out of um, the evils of the music industry is to kind of either opt in or opt out, right? The kind of like sellout idea, like, you know, we could fix the music industry if just people stopped signing major label contracts and stuck with indies. And if we just like, you know, all simultaneously support smaller um, endeavors, those are good things. But I think we've reached a point, especially right now, where it's clear that just such a small number of companies to command such a big part of the industry that we need to like fight these companies head on. And this idea that we can do it as individuals 
I think is just is pretty discredited at this point. Like we we can only change this if we're all working together, if we're all united. Hopefully, we're we're changing the the discourse a little bit about how you can take on employers as arts workers. Um, or as workers, you know, and in, in, in any industry, like you can only do it together. And we're really seeing a moment right now over the past decade where that independent ethos that you're talking about has been kind of interacting in an interesting way with the aims of platform capitalism. So, so tell us a little more, like what role does streaming play in the economic landscape that musicians have had to face during this incredibly trying year? And what role has it played more generally in the economics of just being a musician? Right. So for so many smaller, mid-level, independent artists, all of our money for the last years has been from performing. You know, I've been performing, you know, for like 10 years now. Um, around that with a few different acts and the only money I've made has been from from performing um, maybe a little bit from like licensing and, and syncs and stuff like that um, but it, it's rare you're seeing any significant income coming in from this digital realm that's supposed to play a big part and I think for a while um, independent musicians were sort of just just eating this um, and, and, you know, complaining, but kind of being like, okay, it's fine. Like, we just accepted all our money comes from touring. Um, but then when touring suddenly disappeared, it, it really revealed how broken this model is that so much of people's music consumption is being eaten up by this um, streaming that's just not compensating um, artists anything. Um, you know, even bands that are doing fairly well on Spotify, you know, will talk about earning over the course of the year, the equivalent of like playing a couple shows, you know? Wow. Um, so it's just like absolutely nothing. And it's especially grotesque right now when you have just thousands and thousands of musicians out of work and Spotify is, you know, posting $50 billion evaluation and their CEO Daniel Exxon, you know, doing interviews, telling musicians that we just need to work harder to make it on the platform. So as in so many industries, the pandemic has has just truly revealed how broken the platform is and how, how unequal it is and how distorted it is. You know, on that note, what are the core demands of the Justice at Spotify campaign that you guys are running? Right. So the, the core main economic demand is asking for a cent per stream um i've heard you know reactions to this i've you know like eighteen thousand people have signed on to this so by and large this has done extraordinarily well some people are saying oh that's too little to ask for some people are saying it's too much to ask for um but it seems like an easy to understand place to put ourselves to move forward and we're talking about increasing compensation this idea of a per stream right often gets really mystified. I think when people talk about it, you know, people want to say things like, oh, that's not really how it works. Like it's being paid out of this big pool and the per stream depends on if it's like a free tier um, stream or a subscriber stream and what country it's coming from and, and so on and so on and so on. Um, I think it's easy to get too caught up in trying to analyze these like tiny specifics of streaming um, and to distract from the bigger issue. And our take is that it's not our job as the workers at this company to fully explain back to Spotify where this money is supposed to come from, right? If you're organizing at 
uh, Walmart and wanting $15 an hour, it's you're not your job as a worker to explain every little detail of Walmart's supply chain back to Walmart and tell them where they're going to cut things to be able to pay you more. Um, you understand as a worker that this is a company making billions and billions of dollars with CEOs who are billionaires with all these Wall Street investors who can pay you more and should pay you more and are only going to do so if you demand it. Um, so we're coming at this this angle that this center stream is still not that much money, but it's what something that musicians need to, to, to earn to be approaching um, making some money off of this platform. And it's Spotify's job to figure out how to pay us that. And the last line of our demand is if they can't pay that, they shouldn't exist as a model, right? They need to reframe this model to be able to pay us more. Just for people who might not be familiar with the ins and outs of Spotify and its relationship with artists, is there a context or perspective that you can give about the penny per stream? Because that, that really seems like not that much money, but how does that compare to what you guys are getting paid out now and what kind of a difference would that really make? Yeah, so there's different debates on what Spotify actually pays out per stream. And depending on what article you read, you're going to get different numbers. Um, but it's fractions, fractions of a penny, right? Some people say it's like a quarter of a penny. Some people say it's like a hundredth of a penny. Um, but it's a tiny, tiny fraction um, of a cent. And it just simply doesn't add up to much unless you're already a millionaire being backed by a major label and can rack up millions and billions of streams. Um, so this is how most artists interact with Spotify. A lot of artists don't even know what their numbers are on Spotify or like what the financial is coming back because it's so insignificant. It just kind of gets pooled back into the uh, money they owe against a record label who put out their record and it just kind of disappears into nothingness. Um, if you have uh, an independent distributor like DistroKid or something that's like putting your music into Spotify, um, for most artists I know you're not even really thinking about it. Um, because the payouts are so insignificant. Yeah, and what streaming users probably don't know is that when you stream an artist, the money from your subscription, or if you have a free account, the money in like advertising revenue that is generated, that doesn't go directly to the artist that you're listening to. The streams that an artist earns are understood as a percentage of total streams that all artists receive on the platform. And then the money is sort of divvied up based on who gets the most streams. And this kind of like naturally lends itself to a certain like top tier of big earning artists, popular artists making massive amounts of money compared to just a medium tier musician or something like the top 10% of artists, according to a Rolling Stone article, receive 99.4% of the total streaming payouts, wow. right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's staggering. And just to speak to that last point, there's this notion that by having all this music available, that Spotify, these streaming platforms, would somehow democratize the music industry. And we'd see, um, you know, lo lower level artists, non-major label artists um, be able to rise via the, the balanced exposure um, we know, however, that the, the pro rata model that they currently use, it punishes smaller artists if they can't keep up with the pace of growth of larger artists. So, you know, if, if Lady Gaga is growing at a faster rate than whatever, you know, 
punk band or uh, that's, you know, in your town, which is what is happening. Um, your rates are not only staying at this like very low, low level, but they're actually decreasing as the bigger artist gets disproportionately larger. It is easy to see Spotify balking at this penny per stream argument when just this year it teamed up with Amazon and Pandora and Google and actively went to court to appeal an increase in mechanical royalty rates, which is another kind of royalty that Spotify has to pay people. And then you sort of touched on this before, but there are some people who support the spirit of this campaign, but they say that the penny per stream idea isn't possible given Spotify's existing business model. What do you say to that argument? Why is it still important to make this demand, even if it's more of a symbolic demand rather than, you know, something that will exactly be implemented as you describe it? I think it's important to begin making a collectively organized incision somewhere into this model. I think we've been focused for years now on analyzing the model. And I I think that's great. Um, Like so many journalists and bloggers and people at think tanks and um, other organizations have have put out reports and, you know, articles um, going into why Spotify's model is broken and suggesting we should be moving towards something else. The piece that's been really missing has been building power within the industry to actually begin to make these changes. Um, And so that's what we're trying to do here. And a good demand is not some long convoluted blog post, right? It's, it's saying a cent per stream. It's saying a clear Mm -hmm. demand that you can get people to rally behind to insist that Spotify changes the model. I mean, I do sincerely think it's possible to um, Spotify to pay this level of royalties out to people. These are billion, billion dollar companies. There's so much money flying around Mm -hmm. while they simultaneously claim poverty, right? Like, you know, Spotify posted a loss um, in their last earnings report. And some people were saying like, oh, I can you be demanding more money from them if they're posting a loss. And it's like, this is how stuff works now. Like a week after they posted the loss, they announced they're spending $250 million on purchasing a new podcasting uh, production company. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Amazon for years said they were working at a loss. Uber says they're working at a loss while simultaneously becoming these like monopoly players within their industries. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's it's an absurdity to like take at face value the idea that these companies like don't have money to pay their workers. Um, And I think instead of getting into these arguments um, on those terms, I think is is, is a bit of a black hole. Um, And that at some point, which is what we're trying to do here, we just have to say, no, pay us. And the message has resonated, right? We have, you know, it's only been going on for a couple of weeks and there's already 18,000 people who have engaged with this. As far as I'm aware, it's never been done as like a collective action of um, uh, cultural workers making this kind of demand of a a streaming platform. So um, I I, I feel like we've we've been validated in taking this approach and it's only only the beginning, right? And you hope that Spotify will have to respond in some way. Have they responded to you at all? Have they said anything? 
We haven't heard a direct response. Um, they must have heard about it just because it's been in so much media. Multiple outlets, including tech outlets, have been reaching out to them for comments. They haven't commented on it, but I'm uh, 100% sure they've heard about it. And we're planning within the next few weeks to, to do like socially distanced in-person um, deliveries of these demands in multiple cities. Um, so mm. if they don't know about it yet, they're, they're going to... Like going to their offices? Yeah, exactly. So we, we don't have an official announcement on when that's going to be yet, but we're, we're working toward doing that again as, a, I think, a pretty unprecedented thing of like having a, a, a in-person collective action at a, one of these companies. I'm excited about this idea. As this is going on this year, artists are struggling to survive. Live music income has dried up. Spotify co-founder and CEO Daniel Eck has made a number of comments that have made artists pretty angry, especially one in particular in an interview with Music Ally in July. For example, he seemed to suggest that if artists aren't making money on Spotify, it's because they're not putting out music frequently enough, not focusing enough on storytelling, not engaging in enough of a, quote, continuous dialogue with fans. Um, what sort of vision of the future of the music industry and artist role within it do you think is being like projected here? They're presenting a very scary vision of the future, an exacerbation of what we're already living in, where we're expected as artists or really as any kind of worker to, to just devote more and more of our time to production and promotion. Um, that if you're mm -hmm. an artist, you not only have to write an album, um, and performance, you also have to be going constant social media engagement, making elaborate videos on TikTok, doing all of this um, work for increasingly small amounts of money. Um, in, in some ways, this is this is new, right? In, in the way they're they're exploiting like gig workers, but in some ways, it's a very old story, right? The capitalists just saying, you know, stop complaining, work harder. Um, it's a very mm -hmm. old story, which is, I think, why this resonated so much, like universal anger at these, these statements. And I think actually helped us organize a lot because, you know, he, he really made himself into a personalized villain. Like so many of these streaming platforms have these anonymous uh, tech bros behind them. But he really put a face to the, the, the villainy of Spotify, um, which is, I think, a very bad move on his part. But yeah, it's a terrifying vision of the future in which you're just working increasingly hard for increasing a little money. So here we are, we're rolling into a new administration. What are some of the broader aims of UMA as we move forward for the next four years? Given that we don't know when live music is coming back and the jury is obviously still out on the streaming conversation, do you think public arts funding is something that could potentially be on the table? Why or why not might that work? Yeah, so UMA currently has a number of committees working toward some longer term, some short term goals. We have people in like venue committees, in label committees, in police abolition committees, trying to figure out how to best handle these issues as music workers, what's going to benefit us and what we can work for um, to like flex our collective power within the industry. So we're going to keep on this streaming issue and hopefully a at least a moderately more pro-labor administration can open the door to, you know, taking 
congressional action, like a continuation of some of the um, antitrust um, hearings that were taking place uh, about Facebook, right? And we're already seeing uh, um, governments in Europe take on, for instance, Amazon around these antitrust issues. So I think the antitrust stuff around uh, tech companies and streaming platforms is going to be a significant thing. Uh, but you're right, arts funding is huge. The, the NEA has been just continuously gutted over the last few decades and is always this kind of conservative talking point. Like, how can we be giving this much money to the arts? You know, it's, it's this uh, thing they like to, to fixate on. And hopefully we can rearrange that conversation into, you know, declaring ourselves as workers, that we need this money. And music workers, I think, saw this over the, the first few months of the pandemic where we were getting that extended um, unemployment money um, getting that additional $600. And for so many of us, myself included, that's what was getting us through. And we saw the power of uh, actually having public assistance in the United States. And you saw a lot of music workers understand that, yeah, we're musicians, we're artists, but we are workers. Like we have the same interests as other workers in terms of getting unemployment, getting funding, in terms of healthcare. Right. Healthcare is huge for for music workers. Uh, so few musicians have decent health care and issues like Medicare for all um, are hugely important to uh, people across the music industry who have these kind of precarious positions, as do so many gig workers. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunities to be pushing the government, um, the administration to be taking action. Um, both for giving benefits and funding to musicians, as well as to perhaps taking a role in creating more uh, fair economic systems within these streaming companies. Um, and then we're going to keep building Yuma. You know, we just started this thing. So we're going to keep pushing on streaming. Um, and I think we have a lot of exciting stuff planned. Given how decimated public arts funding has been in the U.S., to the point where I think that most people, whether they're artists or not, don't even realize that at one point there was a precedent for like more robust support for the arts in this country, what first steps would be needed to even like have that conversation, have momentum, especially when it's going to be competing with essentially every other industry for more public support? Are there successful models you've seen in other countries where public arts funding is way more of a tradition that could potentially be a bridge to establishing something like that here? Yeah, as you said, public arts funding, like in Europe, is just, it's, it's incomparably large uh, per capita to, to what we have in the United States. It's just nothing here. Um, and that's, it gets gutted with every new administration, right? NEA keeps losing funding. And those countries where you do have robust public arts funding, it's no coincidence, also countries with much stronger labor movements and often much more unionized arts sectors and so I look forward to having an organization like you might able to um, work with existing arts unions like, you know, SAG-AFRA and like IATSE and the AFM to have a more concerted effort to, to push on a, a new administration to make sure that arts funding gets out there. Because you're right, it's, it's especially given the, the digital economy, it's just huge to have that government funding. I'm in Rhode Island, and we have the Rhode Island State Council for the Arts. It was well into my music career that I found out that this even existed. Once I did, it was great, because it was this nice 
um, you know, couldn't pay for everything, but was a nice way to a couple times a year apply for grants and get the supplemental income. And when COVID started, I was frantically applying for grants um, and got uh, one initial emergency one from the state of Rhode Island um, and then applied for some more. Uh, but they were forced to a few months ago send an email and just saying like, hey, there wasn't a federal budget. The state office just doesn't have any money anymore. So we can't do the, the most recent round of grants that you all applied for. It was a very direct, just like there's no federal funding. And so none of these people um, in the state who applied for these grants got them, right? It's all coming from the federal level. So we need to organize a more uh, robust labor movement um, to push for that. And being that so many musicians are independent musicians now, I think, uh, yeah, organizations like ours and others that have formed like the Music Workers Alliance in New York and um, others need to, to get focused on pushing for that. Well, Joey Laneve de Francesco, thank you so much for coming on The Culture Journalist. And if people are interested in following what you're up to and what Yuma is up to, how can they get in touch? Well, thank you so much for having me. This was great. Yuma is at unionofmusicians.org. And that has all the information on the Spotify campaign and socials and everything like that. Uh, I guess I'm personally on uh, Twitter as Joey Quits. That's it for our show. Thanks so much for listening. Today's episode was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Dominic. Our theme music was composed by Mark Donica. We highly recommend checking out his awesome band, Survive, who you can go support over at Bandcamp. To keep up with my and Emily's work and stay in the know for season two, go subscribe to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts to help support independent journalism.